Insurance professionals work hard every day to keep people safe. But as technology transforms the industry, how can insurers protect not only their clients, but also shield themselves from ever-changing cyber risks? My name is Elizabeth Blossfield, and I'm the host of the Insuring Cyber Podcast, a bi-monthly look into how the world of cyber and the business of insurance are connected. Hi, everyone. This week on the Insuring Cyber Podcast, I thought we would check in with the cybersecurity industry to learn about any new risk trends that insurers and businesses should be aware of. I also wanted to check in on how national governments are working to navigate some of the challenges presented by cyber risk, how they're partnering with private industry, and what the cybersecurity community is paying attention to in the current landscape. I have two great guests to help break this all down for me, and they both not only have extensive experience working in cybersecurity, but in government as well. And they both have experience leading cyber red teams, which I think is a fascinating area of cybersecurity. The National Institute of Standards and Technology defines a cyber red team as a group of people authorized and organized to emulate a potential adversary's attack or exploitation capabilities against an enterprise's security posture. These teams work to improve enterprise cybersecurity by demonstrating the impacts of successful attacks and what works to defend against them. We'll talk about what both of these guests learned from those experiences about the biggest cybersecurity vulnerabilities both within government systems and private companies, and why attack simulations are so important in improving cybersecurity posture. My first guest is Reuven Aronashvili, founder and CEO of cybersecurity platform Sai, based in Israel. He's also a founding team member of the Israeli Army's Red Team, an incident response team, and is certified by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security as an industrial control systems and supervisory control and data acquisition cybersecurity expert. At SAI, Ruben works as an advisor and a partner to organizations that range from medium size to Fortune 1000 and works to plan, design, assess, and optimize their cybersecurity programs. He says his experience within the Israeli Army's Red Team Unit helped shape his understanding of the dynamic cyber landscape and his belief that organizations must continuously challenge their basic assumptions about technology and security efforts to stay efficient. Check out what he had to say. Hi, Ruby. It's great to be speaking with you. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I'm really excited to talk to you and some about some of your background and sort of check in about the status of the cybersecurity industry. So, you know, I was wondering if you could start off just sort of sharing a little bit of your background with me and what led you to cybersecurity initially. Of course. So um, I've started my professional career in the Israeli army. That's quite common in Israel. Um, however, I've done uh, quite a special program in the IDF called the TDM, in which I've done my B-Science and M-Science degree in computer science and math. I've done that in Tel Aviv University before joining the Army, uh, which was part of my training to the Army. Then I joined the Cybersecurity Unit um, in the IDF uh, called Matsov. This is the Center of Encryption and Cybersecurity. Uh, there I was in the founding team of uh, the Israeli Red Team, Section 21. Uh, served there for seven years, uh, which was highly technical, innovative environment, as you can imagine, that you find in an army organization such uh, as the IDF. Um, and there uh, I acquired my skills, capabilities on the offensive defense side. Uh, and 2012, after seven years of service, I left and founded SAI. That's uh, more or less the background, uh, starting as a 
highly technical, uh, let's say, cyber security expert in the Israeli army, and then in the commercial environment, that is a little bit different. That's great. Well, yeah, you have such an extensive and interesting background, so I'm excited to be talking to you today. And I know that it says on Sai's website that it uses data to predict risk and sort of help customers get more control over their cybersecurity. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and the company's mission and how it's sort of innovating in the cybersecurity space. Of course. So, um, you know, uh, while working in the industry for several years, you get uh, to understand the pain points of CISOs and in general security, um, let's say leaders in organizations, and it ends up in the same way every time, right? First, how do I understand or get visibility into my technical risk profile? In other words, I need to understand where my weaknesses are, and that's maybe the first step, and that's something that is quite common. The complexity of understanding the organizational uh, situation or technical risk is quite um, a challenging situation. Think about the, the landscape, right? The attack landscape. You have cloud environments, you have SaaS platforms, you have on-premises environment, you have uh, in some cases the IoT devices, OT devices. Per item, per specific environment, you have different tools that are able to show you what is the cybersecurity situation there. Now, how do you get all of that together? How do you know what is more important, right? So that led us to a second problem that we've seen. How do you take the technical risk profile of an organization and correlate it directly to the business risk? Meaning I have now a vulnerability in server X um, on IPY, and this is the vulnerability. Is it critical to my organization? What will be the damage in case of, um, of a compromise there? Those are questions that are extremely important to answer because based on that, you know what you need to invest, how much, and what is the effort that is required in order to recover. Because if that's a million dollar problem and you invest two million in order to solve it, of course it doesn't make sense, right? Uh, but if that's a 200 million problem and you invest 200K in order to solve it, that's something that uh, probably makes sense, right? It makes a lot of sense to invest 200K in order to solve the 200 million problem. So being able to understand the risk connected and correlated to the business-related impact, quantify that, and in the end, based on those parameters, make a decision on what is the optimal way to invest the cybersecurity budget and to actually increase the cybersecurity maturity of the organization, that's the mission statement of what we do. So make it very simple, technical risk profiling, risk quantification, mitigation and budget optimization. Those are the things that we are doing inside and that's the value prop that we have for our customers. Yeah, that's great. That's really helpful background about some of the work that you're doing. It sounds like very important work in cybersecurity. And I know you mentioned earlier in the conversation your time as the co-founder of Israel Defense Forces Red Team Unit. And I know that yeah. you mentioned on your LinkedIn profile that that sort of shaped your belief that to keep security efforts efficient, organizations have to continuously challenge their assumptions and use cutting edge mm -hmm. technology. Um, so can you talk more about what you learned from your experience with IDF's Red Team Unit and how that sort of shaped your view of cybersecurity? Of course. So when you are in an army organization, uh, things that you see, let's say in government environment in general, those are usually things that are in a way more advanced than what you see in the, let's say, commercial world or uh, outside of the army. Um, when I was in the army, we've seen things that, uh, you know, in 2005 in the army, we've seen things that only maybe in 2012, 2013, we started to see in the industry. So quite a gap. By the way, today the gap is getting smaller and smaller. So things that we see 
in the army a year later or two years later are already in the industry. So really the cycle of uh, things getting commercialized, that's a very short cycle uh, compared to what we had in the past. And still, you know, in those kind of environments, you're getting to a situation that you ask yourself, okay, we have 200,000 attacks, attempts per week. How do we know what is more important, right? That's, that really was the leading question that we have as a cybersecurity organization inside the IDF. And then, you know, the one thing that you understand is prioritization is key. If you are not able to say what is more important, justify that and act accordingly, practically speaking, you're not able to protect your organization. Very simple, right? So when we thought at the time of how do you actually take prioritization in a way that you can trust it, not with financial figures like you see in the industry, in the commercial world, which is, you know, a lot of things are actually being translated into money in the end, right? In the army, it's in the end, it's human lives. It's terror activities that you are not able to block. Those are significant issues that um, actually lead you to understand that without a proper mathematical environment and scientific approach that you can prove mathematically and get convinced that this is the way to do that, you're not able really to protect the organization. So then you're asking me what was the one thing maybe that I learned from the army is if you want to solve difficult problems, find a scientific approach that will solve the problem for you. Um, and uh, all the estimation work, uh, working with your stomach, um, working based on uh, different frameworks that are considered to be market leaders and so on, or market uh, best practices, those are all nice to have. But if you cannot justify, if you cannot back it up with a really scientific approach and scientific formula, that's not good enough. And from my point of view, that's what I, I've taken from the army and continue to uh, implement uh, as an approach inside. Yeah, that makes sense. That's great insight from you. You know, your time working in the army, and I know you mentioned um, at the beginning of your answer these cycle times sort of getting shorter between the risks that you're seeing and when you're seeing them actually realized on a much wider scale. And you know, I've read a lot about cyber threats increasing in frequency and, and severity. Um, and you wrote in an article for Forbes last year that companies need to better understand their risks and, as you talked about, where and how to invest in reducing them. So, what would you say is the most important thing that companies need to know about the current cyber risk environment? Environment. Um, I can maybe answer um, in two different ways. First, keep in mind that the offensive side of the world, um, those adversaries are continuously working in order to be much more efficient, meaning they want to invest less and get much more benefit out of it. That goes with the tools that they are developing, that they don't want uh, those tools to be burned easily meaning once those tools are out there, they don't want uh, things to be identified and then they need to reinvest. So they are going with a more polymorphic approach in which people are in the center, social engineering is in the center, things that are easily replicable. Um, then um, when it comes to the maturity level that they present, attacks are becoming much more sophisticated. Uh, the psychology part of it um, becomes... Uh, I, I would say a crucial element, uh, not only when it comes to the initial access vector to the organization, but also how an attack would look like inside of the organization. You know, we say today a lot of times that uh, attackers, they don't break in, they log in, right? Meaning that they are trying to do everything that they do in the organization in a very standard way to try and avoid anomalies. So logging in, 
from the same environment using uh, credentials that were breached uh, or were identified or were uh, cracked in a, in a different uh, environment. Then they are logging in. The uh, activity looks, um, you know, um, legitimate. Uh, and it's very hard to differentiate between the offensive activity until it's too late, right? Uh, to differentiate the offensive activity uh, from the legitimate activity that you have inside your network. Second thing that I would say um, where we need as an industry to invest with all the sophistication that we see in the, in the market, with the fact that attackers are trying to be more efficient, I'm always saying that one thing, you know, um, is maybe the leading uh, concept that you need to, uh, to take in, into consideration when you protect your organization, and that's basic foundations. If you analyze the actual root causes for multiple of the attacks that we see in the industry today, you always it always uh, comes down to first, um, let's say a password related or account related uh, management, whether it's a password breaking, uh, cracking, whether it's multi-factor authentication that is not uh, uh, enabled in the right way, um, patch management, network security, again, basic foundations. We've seen in 2020, uh, 2021, uh, a huge movement towards the next generation capabilities, you know, next generation antivirus, next generation EDR, next generation MDR. Now we all talk about the next generation. The problem is that the foundations are not really solid at the moment. So you're trying to build mature and uh, in a way sophisticated cybersecurity protection level when the basics are not there. If network is not separated correctly, if accounts are not protected, privileged accounts, if passwords are still easy to be uh, easily guessed, then you know all the next generation capabilities won't be, let's say, won't be effective when you really need those. So my basic message here is that if you want to really protect your organization, starts with the base, start with the basic foundations. It's identity management network security, application security, and patch management and everything around that. Those are the basics. If you are able to solve that, you're already in a good situation. And that's my main message. Yeah, I think that's such important advice. Start with the basics. You know, I was talking to someone on this podcast um, before about how some of the tried and true methods that hackers have always used um, are still working for them. So they're still using them. So going back to those basic methods of protection is a really important place right. to start. So I think that's a great point. And, you know, one thing I really wanted to talk about is, you know, I've been hearing a lot more recently about artificial intelligence being sort of a new chapter in cybersecurity because it can be used to identify um, and mitigate threats. And, you know, I was curious if you mm -hmm. agree with that and you know, what you see as some of the benefits of AI in cybersecurity. So of course, you know, every tool that um, you use in the defense world will be used also in the offense world. And actually the, the right order is first is being used in the offensive world and then in the defensive world, unfortunately, because the attackers are much faster uh, in adopting new technology. So I can tell you definitely that we see AI being used already a lot in phishing campaigns, social engineering, learning on how to, gather enough information about the person in order to be quite convincing in the message that you send in a phishing mail, right? So that's something that is uh, quite advanced today and we see that in a lot of platforms. Um, I, I am actually expecting to see much more with that, uh, with uh, let's say self-learning uh, uh, malwares that are able to store themselves and uh, uh, protect themselves uh, from being identified and um, you know eradicate 
eradicated from an organization um, in an easy way. So AI will be definitely used more um, in the offensive world, but it's not only that, you know, we always talk about quantum computing and next generation capabilities really in the industry. So quantum computing can be a great uh, defensive tool uh, when it comes to uh, protection capabilities in high computing power, but also there is a risk associated with that, that um, the same power that you have for protection, you have also for the offensive uh, group. So in a way, you know, the same balance with every tool that is every capability that is coming to the industry, we see a, a balance uh, that is created between the offensive world and the defensive world. Unfortunately, we always have, at least at the beginning, an advantage to the adversaries because they are starting or leveraging those tools earlier in the process. But to me, AI will definitely be a, a tool or capability that will be used a lot. Um, we already see different hacking capabilities using ChatGPT, for example, to write malware using ChatGPT, which is one aspect of it. Of course, there are a lot of other aspects uh, that need to be taken into consideration. But um, from my point of view, we'll definitely see more of that. Uh, but at the same time, I'm saying that the defensive tools can also and will also use AI in order to identify those uh, specific uh, offensive um, tactics uh, that we will see. And uh, I think that in the end, at some point, balance will be still the same at the same level. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned that a lot of these tools are unfortunately first adopted by cyber attackers before being used for defense. And so along those same lines, I was curious, you know, as more companies are embracing AI, you know, things like you said, chat GPT, you know, automation mm -hmm. tools, is that creating an uptick in vulnerabilities as, you know, these companies are plugged into tech platforms and sharing data more than ever before? Is that creating more vulnerabilities among, you know, um, you know, cyber attackers, you know, hacking into organizations? So I think it's, in a way, it ex extends the attack surface. Um, you know, if you use the, or you put information assets or use external tools in order to, uh, you know, to process uh, things in your environment, it's always, uh, in a way, you have uh, some kind of expansion of your attack surface. But I don't, I don't think it's that dramatic as, as uh, people expect. Um, I think that uh, uh, generally speaking, if you take a tool like uh, ChatGPT, um, and we see a lot of organizations now using ChatGPT in order to uh, accelerate their development capabilities, like software development capabilities, right? So it's a very powerful tool in order to do that. But what happens if you have, for example, a backdoor plant into ChatGPT and everyone that is using ChatGPT in order to generate the same source code part will also have this backdoor integrated a backdoor in the, integrated in the code, that's something that can cause, um, you know, a quite a significant harm to the um, to the cybersecurity world because instead of attacking a single organization, you are attacking like the source, the single source of, of uh, the truth. And then from there, it will be propagated into different organizations. So, you know, from offensive perspective, attacking this, source, right, and then getting the dividend later from a lot of organizations that will use the same environment, that's quite a powerful activity that we see that as a trend in general in the offensive industry. Every time that they can do something one time and get continuous value out of it, like attacking even a simple concept of attacking a services company that are, you know, working with different organizations like we've seen in Solar Wind, that's a, a platform specifically that once compromised, um, 
that's uh, that's definitely something that uh, can provide huge benefit to, a, to an attacker. And definitely the gain, the benefit that you get from this single investment will be, um, you know, exponentially worth uh, quite a lot of, uh, um, you know, financial uh, benefits uh, to the attacker. So that's why we see uh, attackers going to this direction. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That is a scary trend. So I'm glad that organizations like yours are, you know, doing the work to educate companies on how to boost their cybersecurity and provide resources. Um, You know, I think that's really important work that you're doing. And we've talked a lot um, about a lot of different things in cybersecurity so far. But my last question is just what do you hope to see for the future of the cybersecurity industry? And how do you see your work at SAI um, fitting into that? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think that uh, the industry is getting more and more mature with time. Honestly speaking, you know, when I started uh, with SAI in 2012, uh, 10, 11 years ago, uh, we were in a situation that we needed to convince a lot of organizations why cybersecurity is important. You know, I heard too many times, I don't see why we need cybersecurity because uh, we are protected, we don't have any enemies, right? And I think that those are things that you don't hear today, right? So the industry definitely matured and we see organizations going uh, or developing different level of cybersecurity programs. So that's definitely something that is positive. Unfortunately, the adversary world is uh, developing in a higher pace. And I think that companies like ourselves are there in order to try and close the gap, right? Bringing those organizations that are trying to protect the organization to understanding of the offensive side in a way that can they, they can close the gap fast enough in order to minimize the impact on the organization, even if a cybersecurity attack happens in the organization, then the impact will be minimized. So we, from our point of view, we don't think that preventing cybersecurity incidents from happen happening, uh, that's something that is quite realistic. However, limiting the impact to something that is definitely within the acceptable risk of the organization, that's really the target that we recommend organizations to have. So trying to avoid everything, it's a very hard problem to achieve. Of course, ideally, that's what we want to achieve. Practically, it's extremely hard to uh, to get there. So setting up a, a realistic um, target of being able just to minimize the damage to the minimum that the organization can live with, that's something that is definitely possible. So SAI in the industry in the future will definitely help organizations make those decisions instantly instead of month of analysis and i think that's one of the main things that we are trying to bring to uh, to the industry agile decision making in cyber security and not you know the five year planning concept that's something that doesn't fit the cyber security world you need to change quickly adapt quickly and understand the risk profile or the risk threat landscape is changing so fast that your risk profile needs to be comparable so from our point of view bringing this message to the industry help them the industry understand the situation as is, understand the trend, and then based on that to invest in the right places in order to minimize the damage in case of cybersecurity attack, that's our mission statement and that's what we are trying to achieve now and in the future. Yeah, that's great. I mean, things are changing so quickly all the time that it makes sense that companies really need to be able to keep up. Um, so that's mm-hmm. great. And I'm really glad to talk to you today. I learned so much. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. My pleasure. I really enjoyed speaking with Ruby and loved what he said about companies needing to adapt as quickly as the attack landscape is evolving to stay ahead. 
which is easier said than done, of course. But I'm glad people like Ruby are working to make sure we're all informed and secure. My next guest is doing equally important work in cybersecurity. Gregory Hatcher is the founder and CEO of White Knight Labs, a cybersecurity consultancy that specializes in offensive cyber engagements. He has previous experience in the U.S. military and the U.S. government. After transitioning from the military in 2017, he's taught at the National Security Agency and led red teams while contracting for CISA, the U.S. government's cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency. In 2021, he joined forces with John Stigerwalt to start White Knight Labs, where he works with a team of engineers to conduct penetration tests and help organizations improve their cybersecurity efforts. He spoke with me about all of this and what it's taught him about the current cyber landscape. Here's what he had to say. Hi, Greg. It's great to be speaking with you today. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing really well. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Um, I was wondering if you could start off kind of giving an overview of your background and how you got into cybersecurity, you know, what interested you about the space initially? Yeah, that's that's a really big question. Um, <laughs> is there a time limit? <laughs> <laughs> um, so my background is kind of weird. I, uh, my undergrad I did at GBSU, Grand Valley State University, right here in Western Michigan. And I did it in political science, which has nothing to do with cybersecurity whatsoever. I spent most of college uh, playing rugby and uh, I was actually first chair in the, the orchestra. I played trombone. So lots mm -hmm. of athletics and music, not much political science or cyber. So um, after getting out, I, uh, I listed right into the military. I did seven years in Army Special Forces or combat deployments to the Middle East. Um, and that's kind of where I started getting this hunger to learn more about cyber because my MOS in the military was 18 ECHO. The 18 designator stands for Special Forces, and then the ECHO means communications. So all of the, like, the teams routing and switching, um, any kind of like networking infrastructure, VoIP, um, radio technology, I ran all of that. So, uh, and also like what helped like develop my, my ability to like solve problems on my own is like, you know, we'd be in the middle of Syria and there'd be 10 of us and I would have to just like solve all my problems on the ground by myself, just like Googling around. So that, uh, that also like carries over directly into offensive cybersecurity because you're going to hit roadblocks every single day that you know, Google or ChatGPT may not just spit out the answer for you. So um, after after the military, I uh, I got out and my daughter was born. My first daughter was born the week that I got out. So it was very serendipitous. Um, yeah, her name's Juliana. She's she's awesome. She actually just got her tonsils out. So um, it's, it's been an inter interesting week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So uh, so I got out. I was actually stay-at-home dad for a year. But uh, the cool thing about babies is that they sleep a lot. So I had a lot of downtime. Um, and during uh, during that downtime, I, I built uh, like a, a little home lab. I got into offensive security because I've always been um, like an attacker, um, hence being an SF in the first place. Um, and I was very fortunate to get into the SANS Vet Success Program. Um, so basically SANS, if you're a veteran, you can apply to this program and they'll give you training for nine months and then you can actually take certification exams. So I got three SANS certs um, like on the house through SANS. So I was very grateful to them. And then I also got the CISP certification during that time as well. Um, so it was a very eventful year for me. Um, and then in 2018, I started as a junior penetration tester at BDA Labs, which is a boutique offensive security uh, company right here in Grand Rapids. Uh, cut my teeth for two years. like Just like we had to break every single tech technology that came in the door from hardware to software, web applications, mobile. Um, we did some of the testing for like the Call of Duty mobile application. 
Um, we did some like API and product testing for major like top tier EDR product. Um, and then a lot of people don't know this, but part of being um, a penetration tester is you will actually have to do physical pen testing against buildings. So oftentimes a client would come to VDA and be like, hey, we just got this new security system, come in and try to break it, like break into the building, like steal computers, et cetera. So it's one of the few jobs that you can legally break into buildings and people will pay you to do it. So um, after there for being there for two years, uh, I left to go lead um, a red team at CISA. And then my business partner, who I met while I was at VDA, John Stigerwalt, he also left and went over to F-Secure and he led a red team for a couple of years. So we started uh, White Knight Labs a couple of years back because we wanted to take all this knowledge that we gained over the years and like kind of roll up the best methodologies and TTPs that we've learned and, um, you know, like make the best company possible. So WKL is just a raw engineering company. We don't sell like bells and gadgets and widgets. It's just raw engineering. So we hire senior and principal level engineers. I, th I think that answers your question. Yeah, that does. That's great background okay. into how you got into the space. I love hearing people's journeys for how they got into cybersecurity. It's always so interesting. And I love that you got your start, you know, playing rugby and doing music because actually we did a whole <laughs> podcast episode about bringing people into cybersecurity from creative industries like music. So I think that's really fascinating. Yes. Um, and of course, I wish Juliana well. I'm sure getting your tonsils out is not fun. So. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, she's no, probably gonna be angry with with me when she hears this, because uh, I just like divulge her HIPAA information. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, it's all good. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here again. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. It sounds like you have great experience. Um, I know you mentioned that you led a red team for um, the U.S. government agency CISA. Um, could you explain what a red team actually does and what you sort of learned about cybersecurity and the government's role in that in the process? Yeah. Man, you asked some some questions that need like a lot of unpacking. Um, so let's <laughs> let's go into what is the difference between red teaming and pen testing first, so people have a really firm understanding. So, a penetration test is typically a two week engagement. It's it's more like a smash and grab. We're trying to find as many vulnerabilities as possible and exploit them to show the value, as opposed to just running a vulnerability scanner. A penetration test has live exploitation. A red team is very different in that. Uh, you're working intimately with the client hand in hand to understand what are they really afraid of? What is their competitive advantage? And then you'll build scenarios around taking away that competitive advantage via cyber warfare. So if we if we were doing a red team for Microsoft, for example, um, probably like stealing the Windows source code or some kind of new gadget that they're, that they're working on, that would be that would be an objective of the red team. Um, and they're they're low and slow, so we'd have to develop some kind of custom implant that would get through um, all of their defensive solutions like AV, EDR, get through the email security gateway, actually land in an inbox in O365, uh, et cetera. Yeah, so hopefully that was helpful. And then you asked, what is um, what was the second part of the question? Oh, yeah, that was helpful. I was just asking, you know, what you sort of learned in the process about cybersecurity and the government's role in preventing attacks. Yeah, so I, I think the government is is getting better. I think spinning up uh, CISA in the first place has had a huge impact. Um, a lot a lot of people don't know this, but like if you are if you are like running a government municipality, uh, you can actually hire CISA, and they will send you a penetration. They will like give you a penetration test on the house. Like it, it's 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 completely free. So that's one of the teams that I worked for. Um, there was a 14-month waiting list to get us. <laughs> I think I think the word is kind of out at this point. So there's there's very few people that can actually do the work and that are willing to travel around. So that job was like 50% travel because you're just you're constantly moving. So 
Yeah, I think the government is doing a good job. Um, CISA is doing an incredible job. I love like, like Jen Easterly, who leads CISA. She like she's like the public face of the organization, and she's constantly just like like beating the cybersecurity drum. Like she's all over LinkedIn. She she's all over social media, um, and I think that's really her role is so that CISA stays um, in the spotlight. She gets a lot of criticism, and I th- I don't think it's very fair um, because if you're seeing Jen Easterly, like you're essentially seeing the organization. Um, there she's she's constantly keeping it um, top of mind, if you will. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's so much hard work that they're doing, and especially now, you know, as cyber attacks have increasingly ramped up. Um, you know, I'm sure they're so busy, and you know, it makes sense that it's difficult to get those free penetration tests because everybody, I'm sure, is requesting them nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I know, so you mentioned you launched White Knight Labs. Um, So could you talk a little bit more about the work that you do there? I know that you do attack simulations as well. Could you sort of talk about what those entail? Yeah. So I'll talk about an an attack simulation from end to end. So it's very similar to a red team. We'd work with the client to figure out what is their competitive advantage and how we can hurt it via cyber warfare. We'd pick out two or three objectives, whether it's like stealing PII or PHI, if it's a hospital um, or through proprietary information. Um, and then we'll, when, the, when the engagement actually kicks off, we'll stand up infrastructure. Um, the way that WKL stands up our red team infrastructure is very customized. Um, there's several components of it, um, but the, the redirector is where the brains of the operation are. So we'll actually filter our web traffic that hits our backend C2 server right at the, at, at the redirector. So we'll filter on the URI, the URL. We'll only allow certain IP addresses to reach our backend C2 server. That way, when... You know, Susan Accounting of the company that we're actually targeting clicks on our link. Her traffic will be able to get to our C2 server where someone like random scanner on the Internet will not be able to get to our backend C2 server. Sort of Cobalt Strike server doesn't get burned. Um, and Cobalt Strike is just a commercial uh, C2 framework. It's, it's highly used um, in the industry. So and then let's talk about implants for a second. So um, our our implants are also highly tailored to the environment. Uh, we'll typically try to uh, use a tool like um, Built With. We'll figure out what they're using. It's probably going to be like the normal tech stack, like Teams uh, O365. Maybe they're using like some kind of Cisco tool or Skype. And then we'll actually, our implant will look like that. We'll even like down to the icon, we'll clone the resources, we'll clone all the metadata, and then we'll we'll actually make the icon look like um, whatever we're trying to clone. So it'll look like the Teams icon, for example. Um, and then to actually land the implant um, in the inbox, well, if they have a really secure um, like email gateway, like maybe they're using Mimecast or Proofpoint, we'll we'll actually abuse like Google and Cisco's functionality, and we'll have them send the email for us. Because if you're sending from a, like a Google address, it's probably going to land in the inbox because that's already categorized and like a very highly reputable company, right? And how you do that is you would put your fish in a Google Drive um, link, and then you would add. The, the like the person in, in the comments and it would go right to their email inbox just like there's just there's just ways around everything um and also like a detect simulation from wkl standpoint uh, point of view we would also have the, have the physical component so um you know if say we're like doing a, the red team we're three to four weeks in we don't have, have access yet we'll actually go on site we'll do things like dumpster dive uh, we'll try to break into the building. We'll try to clone badges. We'll do reverse tailgating. Uh, when I say reverse tailgate, that means we'll um, we'll actually wait for an employee to come out of the building, and then I'll go in behind them. And that way, you know, I don't have to have like the, a special badge to enter the building. And actually, uh, White Knight Labs did a very interesting uh, 
physical pen test as part of a red team engagement in Boston recently against like a major EMR provider where we had to gain access to this building, but uh, everyone was working from home. So there was only like five people in the building. And I, uh, I sat in the parking lot um, and just, we actually did reconnaissance for a couple of days. We found out the custodian takes out the trash at like 10 AM every morning. So I ended up doing a reverse tailgate on the custodian and uh, getting into the building that way. So. Oh my gosh. So what you're saying is you were basically a spy. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> I, sounds a lot cooler than uh, just sitting in a car waiting to like watch the guy take out the trash, but yeah, I guess so. No, that's great. Um, Yeah. That's a great overview of what you do. I think it's so fascinating and I really appreciate that you can explain all of this in terms that are easy to understand. Sometimes all of the cybersecurity terminology goes right over my head. So I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. I'm just trying to not use acronyms. Like being in the military <laughs> so, and in cyber, there's a lot of acronym soup. So yeah, so many acronyms, and we cover insurance on this podcast as well, and there are just as many in that industry. <laughs> okay. So, um, but yeah, I know that you mentioned in an interview with Voyage New York that it's common for your engineers to find zero day vulnerabilities when you do these penetration tests. Um, can you talk about what that is and the best ways for companies to prevent those? Well, I will. S- I'll give you the bad news first. There's no way to prevent a zero day vulnerability from being exploited on your network because it's a zero day. There's no patch for it. So the definition of a zero day vulnerability is that it's, it's like usually a vulnerability in some software or hardware where it allows an attacker to exploit it and then like gain RCE or do SQL injection or do something in your network. However, there is the the detection piece, right? So you're not going to be able to ever stop all zero-day vulnerabilities from being exploited on your network, but you can focus on detection engineering and just having like a person eyes on glass that knows what a baseline of your operating system should look like within your environment. So the thing is that once the attacker exploits a zero-day vulnerability, they still have to move around and do the normal things like, you know, find active directory misconfigurations. So you can have honeypots. They're probably going to try to Kerberos, like... There's there's just like tons of things that you can do to protect yourself against zero-day vulnerabilities, but the actual exploitation of the vulnerability itself, you're not going to be able to uh, stop. Okay, that makes sense. But at least, yeah, it makes sense that there are ways that you can sort of think about it and hopefully prevent on the front end. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've I've heard a lot of talk about the importance of collaboration between government agencies, you know, private companies and the cybersecurity community when it comes to preventing and, you know, recovering from cyber attacks. I know the government has been consulting with cyber insurers about ransomware, um, you know, as one example, but can you talk about the benefits of those collaborations and what you're seeing that's working well? Well, the United States government is vehemently like don't pay the ransomware criminals, right? And oftentimes companies are in this position like where, you know, they're losing a million dollars a day being down because of of a ransomware attack. And to get back up, they have to pay the criminals like $2 million or they can like lose their business. So it's almost a no brainer that they're going to pay the criminals, unfortunately. Um, Now, Booz Allen Hamilton, which is the United States government's largest like cybersecurity consulting arm, um, they actually have a special department where all they do is negotiate with the criminals to like try to get that ransom amount lower and lower, um, which I think is kind of interesting. There's like this whole new like ecosystem and these new jobs that have been created from ransomware. Yeah, that's so tough. Um, You know, and I love to ask people who work in cybersecurity and have a lot of experience like you do, you know, what are some of the biggest trends in cyber attacks that you're seeing right now? Because I know it changes all the time. Some of the biggest trends. I mean, there's there's always like password spraying, O365. There there's a there's a lot of tools that can get around the way that O365 tries to rate limit you, like rotating IP addresses. Um 
Uh, 2FA bypass is pretty hot right now, and it has been for a long time. And then with like with the with the advent of Azure, more and more companies are using Azure as opposed to aid as opposed to AWS. Um, there's an attack called the Azure Device Code Fish, where you can actually trick a user into like giving you access to their account via a device code. So that's a really interesting 2FA bypass. Some other stuff. What else is going on? We got ChatGPT writing like polymorphic malware. So there's this company called HiS Lab where um, they use ChatGPT to write a polymorphic keylogger that can't be detected by top-tier EDR products. Um, so basically logs all of your keystrokes. So it's gathering passwords, um, you know, all your credential information, credit cards, and then it exfills that information via Microsoft Teams to a backend uh, server. So it's a very interesting time to be in cyber right now. Um, AI is going to change everything. It already is. Yeah, that's crazy. I've heard a lot of talk um, in the cyber industry about chat GPT and, you know, some concern about, you know, AI, you know, replacing people's jobs and things like that. But I never even thought about it in terms of actually writing malware. That's really scary. <laughs> yeah. If, if you look on LinkedIn, um, a lot of developers will try to convince you that like it's not coming for their jobs because um, it's like there's there's bugs in the code. But you have to understand like, you know, chat GPT came out on November 30th, 2022. And we're like, we're, we're in the second iteration right now of it. So this thing in two or three years, it's going to be writing some really, really good code that's going to be bug free. Like I would be shocked if that wasn't the case. Oh, wow. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how things evolve for sure. AI is definitely a big topic of conversation right now. And, um, you know, we've covered a lot in this conversation so far. I guess my last question is just, you know, what are your future plans at White Knight Labs? And, you know, how are you hoping to continue to further things in the cybersecurity industry? Yeah, so we have a, a big push right now, John and I do, um, for like just increasing the amount of content that we produce, uh, blogs, tooling, uh, going to more events, just getting our name out there. We want to be a, a household name, just like Mandiant or Trusted Sec or Black Hills Information Security. Uh, we're teaching at conferences, we're speaking at conference, uh, et cetera. But um, as far as like something very specific to 2023 that we're trying to do is we're taking our um, offensive development course and our advanced red team operations course that we normally teach at cybersecurity conferences. We're taking those offerings on demand so that um, students that want to take our training that they don't want to take it at like a conference or something. They can actually just go to the whitenightlabs.com website and we'll have like a training page and they could put in their credit card information right now and they can pull all the content like the Terraform script that spins up the lab guide that spins up the lab environment in their own AWS cloud, and they can just like start working on it. Uh, this this would be very similar to what Rasta Mouse is doing right now over at zero, zero Point Security. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah, it sounds like you have an exciting year ahead. So it's been great to talk to you. I've learned so much, and thanks for the work that you're doing, and thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, thanks, Elizabeth. I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks to Ruby and Greg for taking the time to speak with me. And thanks to all of you for listening. Once again, my name is Elizabeth Blossfield, and I'm the host of the Insuring Cyber Podcast, a bi-monthly look into how the world of cyber and the business of insurance are connected. Be sure to check back for new episodes publishing every other Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you next time.